Hey, Jay, I've got a question. Shoot, Miles. Way back in episode 149, you mentioned that Captain America turned into a werewolf. Hell yeah, he did. And that that happened in the main Marvel Universe. Hell yeah, it did. What was up with that? You mean aside from awesomeness? Well, Dr. Nightshade developed this serum to turn the entire town of uh, Starksboro, not spelled like Tony, um, there's an E in it, into werewolves. And Cap just happened to be there. Yeah, so he was looking for John Jameson. J. Jonas kid. Right, the astronaut and pilot. Why did Nightshade want a town full of werewolves? Well, it involved this complicated plot by a dude named Dreadmond. I'm not making this up, I swear. To become a cosmic werewolf using something called the Moon Gem. And honestly, the less said about that mess, the better. I mean, I don't know, but I guess this is an X-Men podcast. Okay, so what happened? Well, Cap basically unionized the other werewolves. Of course he did. And then the collective magical weirdness and the Moon Gem started attracting other lupine superheroes. Like Wolfsbane? Yeah, so she came and Jack Russell. Makes sense. He's got the whole wolf thing going, too. And Wolverine. Makes significantly less sense. And Feral. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 214 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to another episode about everybody's favorite crossover, Inferno! Inferno. (laughs) Okay, we should redo that, but I love that we both went to the same place. No, I I like that we said it pretty much in unison. Yeah, that wasn't in the outline at all. That's awesome. No, um, actually, we're going to be, be wrapping up Executioner's song here. But first, we've got a couple announcements. Um, now that FlameCon's over, we've got another show on the horizon. Uh, we're not officially going to be at New York Comic Con, but we will both physically be there. Miles is going to be working at the Dark Horse booth. I think I'm mostly going to be loitering around Cal uh, McDonald's table. It's um, probably listed in Earth Sorcery 101. And... Um, I've also got a panel on Saturday from 6.15 to 7.15 called Harnessing Internet Fandom for Good, um, where I'm basically just going to talk about how awesome you guys are. So, You guys are the best internet fandom fan peoples, but you're great, yes. And uh, so yeah, if you're at New York Comic Con um, and you happen to find us, um, please say hi. We'll give you high fives. Speaking of y'all being the best... Something that we've wanted to do for a long time but haven't really had the time and resources to put together um, is provide transcripts of the show. And thanks to a couple really, really amazing listeners, Erica and Rebecca, those are now happening. Erica and Rebecca basically organized this on their own. Erica started it. Rebecca basically jumped in as a co-organizer. It's all been coordinated on the Discord, and if you're interested in participating, I can drop a link to that in the visual companion to this post. But the first of those transcripts is up now um, on our wiki. I will link to that, and um, this is amazing, and I really, really appreciate all of the folks who who are doing this. This is an entirely volunteer-driven project, and it's really cool. And again, if you are interested in helping with that, um, I'll drop links. If you are interested in it as a resource, just keep an eye on the wiki and thank you again so much to erica and rebecca and to everyone else who's been helping out with that seriously thank you this is such a cool project although it's going to be kind of weird that our dick jokes are going to be like way more googleable now i mean i put most of them in the tags anyway (laughs) that's probably true that's probably true yeah if you've been following the podcast for any length of time and you actually look at it on our website, um, you you may have already caught on to the fact that the about two-thirds of the tags in any given post are just completely useless commentary. <laughs> yup, I love it. It's an important uh, and underseen part of our show. I regret nothing. Nor should you. So, speaking of things that we surprisingly don't regret, like you said, Jay, we're going to be talking about Executioner's Song. Now, we already did three episodes, three exhaustive episodes about all of the people fighting in various locations and also having surprisingly strong feelings. So, this episode, we are going to be covering some story. There are two issues that are immediate follow-up to Executioner's Song, but we're also going to be looking at a, a single issue that came out partway through the crossover. This is called Strife's Strike File. You may have heard us refer to it previously as Strife's Burn Book, which is what it is. But first, 
You know, there's so much happened in that event. I feel like maybe we should just do a quick recap. Previously on Executioner's Song. Strife, excessively bladed emo kid and arch nemesis of grizzled future soldier Cable, launched an intensely complicated revenge plan against lots of folks he felt had in some way wronged him. First, disguised as the identically faced Cable, he shot Professor Xavier, infecting Xavier with a techno-organic virus. The X-Men and X-Factor captured Cable's outlaw team X-Force, hoping to use X-Force to find Cable. That didn't really work, and the X-Men released Cannonball and Boom Boom while keeping the rest of X-Force incarcerated. Thankfully for Xavier, the immortal villain Apocalypse, who got roped into this whole deal, hated Strife even more than he hated the X-Men, and eventually was able to cure Xavier using some exceptionally dubious science. Meanwhile, Strife had Mr. Sinister use Apocalypse's horsemen to capture Cyclops and Jean Grey from the X-Men's favorite bar, Harry's Hideaway. Sinister then traded them to Strife, who tortured the couple in very confusing ways, most of which involved insinuations that they were really bad parents. Also, Strife demonstrated his confusion about how nursing worked. I am never going to miss an opportunity to mention that. Now, it turned out Strife was Cyclops' recently infant son, Nathan Christopher, sent to the future to be cured of a different techno-organic virus and very mad at his dad and dad's girlfriend for abandoning him. Or at least he thought he was, or at least he insinuates that he thought he was. That's gonna, he's going to turn out to have been wrong either way, but we're going to get to that much, much later. Eventually, all the good guys and bad guys converged on Strife's base on the moon, and Cable, who was implied at the time to be a failed cyborg clone of Strife, when in fact it's the opposite, confronted the villain, man to man, and quite literally, face to face, abetted by an unwilling Cyclops, Cable eventually decided to take the Terminator option, blowing up himself, Strife, and Strife's moon base, and ending the conflict at the cost of our favorite grumpy cyborg soldier. Man, we just did that in like a couple minutes. We did it before in three episodes. We could have been way more efficient. Well, that's Jay and Miles rapidly recap the X-Men. If you actually stop to explain it, it takes a lot longer. So I want to start by talking about Strife's strike file because this came out in the middle of Executioner's Song, which is bonkers. Um... This thing is is basically a collection. It's it's Strife's burn book. It's Strife's detailed listings where he just talks extensive shit about a bunch of characters, a fair number of whom haven't yet appeared in the comics. Now, if you'd already been buying Executioner's Song, you'd been getting the trading cards that came with each issue, you'd notice that some of those cards are reprinted here. The rest of the entries are in roughly the same confusing format. There are a lot of these. Jade, do you want to just do a rapid fire back and forth of who's in them to start? Yeah, and I should note that I am going to read these entry titles as written. I'm specifying that for reasons that will become fairly obvious as I go through. So we've got Xavier. Magneto. The Acolytes. Jean Grey and Cyclops. Ascani. Polaris and Havoc. Holocaust. Apocalypse. Dark Riders. Mr. Sinister. Caliban. Archangel. Beast. Psylocke slash Betsy Braddock. Ilyana. Scarlet Witch slash Quicksilver. Bishop and Wolverine. Graydon Creed. Forge. Moira McTaggart. Threnody. Sebastian Shaw slash Hellfire Club. Game Master. The Upstarts. Fabian Cortez. Gideon. Mutant Liberation Front. Cannonball. Cable. Strife. Yeah, he's got a listing for himself. So, as you may have noticed when we were reading those off, um, there are some kind of major parallelism and structural issues with those headings. And as, as an editor, I feel fairly strongly that before launching into his strike file, Strife should perhaps have, have made Strife's style guide. Right, like the MLF should have totally gone MLA. I don't really care what format he uses as long as he keeps it consistent. I mean, we have listings like Psylocke slash Betsy Braddock and... Scarlet Witch slash Quicksilver. Half the characters are listed by their code names. Some are just listed by their first names. Some are listed by their full names. Who knows? Who cares? Some of the groups have the in front of their names. Some don't. Damn it, Strife. This is why you failed. Right here. Right? This is, I mean, I know he comes from an apocalyptic future where English isn't the lingua franca and there's not really written language, but still. 
seriously. So, we don't have time to go through the whole damn thing because, as you probably just gathered, this is a lot. So, I kind of want to start, um, if we can, by, by going through the characters who made their first appearances in the Strike Files. This is weird. That's, that's a weird way to introduce characters. And it's implicitly foreshadowing, except at least one of these guys didn't show up till like 2001. Right, because one of the characters here is Holocaust. Now, you may remember that name as A, in somewhat poor taste, and B, being the name of a character from the Age of Apocalypse alternate reality. And in fact, we wouldn't see the Earth-616 Holocaust for, like, ages until Uncanny X-Force. We haven't actually gotten to the Age of Apocalypse yet, so you may just not remember that name at all. Right. Who else do we have, Jay? Well, let's see, we have Graydon Creed. Um, Graydon Creed is Sabretooth and Mystique's shitty human kid. He's so terrible. We also have Threnody, who will first appear pretty soon in Adjectiveless X-Men, and then be a really big deal in X-Man, which we will probably not be covering. We might. We'll see. The jury's still out on X-Man. Um, finally, and I can't remember, I, has she actually appeared briefly in the comics when we saw the upstarts or not? Uh, we've got Sienna Blaze. I'm pretty sure this was the first time she was mentioned, and she'll go on to be a pretty big deal. Yeah, she's going to be the main villain of X-Men Unlimited number one. Um, that's my primary context for her, but she's, she's around significantly more than that. There are also some recognizable characters, and again, we're not going to read all of these, but I feel like we should at least touch on a few highlights. Let's start with Archangel. So... I'm kind of torn, because on one hand, the obvious move here is, is, is to read these in, in Strife's voice, but on the other hand, that seems like kind of a cruel thing to do to both you and the listeners, and they're all on a disc that Professor Xavier got anyway, so I feel like we can, we can just sort of secondhand it. Uh, you want to start with Archangel? I do, and I also want to do my Strife voice, so I will. Follow your heart. Which Warren Worthington will come out to play tonight? Upright and moral protector of mutant kind, or self-deluded avenging angel of death? It comes down to a matter of which side of the coin Warren wishes would land face up. I hold the shiny silver quarter. It catches the devil's light just so. It teases and tantalizes you with the hint of treasures to come. You take it in your cold, hard fingers. I show you where to toss it. Apocalypse is the playing field. You smile. The coin goes up, twisting and turning in midair, not unlike a gentle bird caught in a swirling tornado of lust and desperation. What the fuck? It lands, spinning light playing off your eyes. What does it come up, Warren? Which will it be? Okay, um, I, I just want to take this, this, this moment to note that there is no question in my mind that Strife writes a ludicrous volume of self-insert fanfiction. Oh god, he totally does. I love the way- I just love his writing voice, his speaking voice. I guess it's the same because it's a comic book. But it's so overwrought, which is perfect for Strife! Yeah, yeah, no, he is he is definitely the, the king of drama. And that, that brings us to uh, Bishop and Wolverine, who, who get a joint entry. And I am not going to do the Strife voice, for which I'm not even a little bit sorry. Hunters, born and bred in a world too weak for them. They catch the scent of trouble and think they know the intent of the prey. One born to the pains of the past, the other to those of the future. Two men as out of time and touch with themselves as am I. As it stands, they are just minor players in a much larger game, no matter the importance they impart on themselves as pieces in the arena of time. Let the pawns sniff the rotted wood for maggots. Let them catch the scent. Then they will know the scent they have captured on icy winds is that of their own fear. The smell of their own failures. The smell of their own deaths. That's not even a mixed metaphor. That's like a metaphor smoothie. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Of course, no Strife reading would be complete without his musings on Cable, so I'm gonna do that. Play the game with me one last time, mirror friend. Run through time with me and race against the repetition of sins we've endured and caused over and over again. 
See my reflection, mirror foe. Look at your face staring at you with scars carved in pain and hopelessness. Sneer as the glint of metal catches your eye and ask yourself what you are fighting for. Humanity? Mutants? Tomorrow? Today? All illusions, as you of all people know. There is nothing to be gained by fighting. Your future is past. Your past is immutable. There is only hatred to fuel us. Hatred to consume us. Hatred to engulf us. Walk in the fire with me, Nathan. Let us burn together. How many times do you think Strife has seen Donnie Darko? Like, a hundred? He also thinks the director's cut is terrible, because it is. Alright, alright, so I've, I've, got, I've got Strife, and I'll, I'll try to do the voice, I will try to do the voice. I love this entry so much, because it definitely contains large portions of the lyrics of the song that's going to be the title track on the first album of the emo band he's totally going to put together someday. The final move. White King against Black King. Yet here, nothing but gray reigns supreme. Shades of gray, of uncertainty, insecurity, confusion, anger, love and hate. Shades of me, shades of you, shades of them. Let the final moves be made. Let time determine the righteousness of my path. I did it for only two reasons. I did it because I hate you all. And I did it, ultimately, because I hate myself. Tomorrow I will know if I was right or wrong. Strife, you're a flawed man. You're a excessively sharp dresser. But sir, today, we salute you. You know, we haven't done an art challenge in a while. True, true. I, I don't know how many of our listeners are musicians, and I, I don't know how many of them have the perhaps terrible judgment necessary to do this. But man, if anyone wants to, to use most of this in, in a song or, or just set it to music in general, that would be exceptionally delightful. Oh man, I love everything about this plan. Now I'm just imagining, like, you know how back before radio and stuff, families would just sort of gather around the piano and like sing and somebody would play and that was their entertainment? Now I'm just imagining Strife doing that with little tiny Strife children. This is a strange flight of fancy, a strange mental image. I don't know where it came from, but it's my favorite thing that is happening at this moment. Oh, actually, I was going to say that Dave, who's the illustrator, is a really good punk guitarist and vocalist, but um, that too. Well, damn, Dave, you know you want to. I, yeah, this is, this is, I, I, I'd like to see this, you know, explored across styles. Fiona Apple's strike file, if you will. I will. Now, okay, so there are a bunch of different entries. We obviously don't have time to go through all of them. One of the ones I want to mention, if not read, is the one about Ilyana Rasputin, because why the hell would she be here? Right, and it doesn't, you know, it, it, first of all, it just calls her Ilyana, but it writes about her as magic, which is another formatting issue that makes me angry. And I don't understand why he only uses her first name when he uses the full names of anyone he doesn't refer to by their code name otherwise. And ah, it's dumb. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, why is Liana in here? Well, it's interesting because he's talking about something that wouldn't be revealed until after Executioner's song. He keeps mentioning his legacy and how it may fall upon anybody, young or old, etc. And it's in her entry that he mentions that. And if you've read these stories uh, a little bit ahead of this, you know why. Do we want to spoil this now? I think for this one, let's not, because if anybody isn't familiar with that big plot point, I want to get to it when we have time to talk about it. Let me put it this way. There's a second X-Men Tattoo Tales picture book that we're saving. Sure is. All right. So that's Strife Strike File, but we are also covering both the official epilogue to Executioner's Song and Uncanny X-Men, and an X-Force issue that is very much a follow-up, and both of these are stellar goddamn issues! They are really, really, really good. So we've talked a lot about how much we love the quiet moments between the big fights, and often those come in the aftermath of, of, of an event, um, as is the case here. Now, there is one more issue that would qualify, that's X-Factor number 87, 
That one we want to focus on a little bit more, so we won't be covering that right now, we will soon. But for now, let's start with Uncanny X-Men number 297, Up and Around. So this is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Brandon Peterson, and inked by Dan Panosian, and it's got a really kind of fantastically misleading cover of a very scary Charles Xavier looming over a frightened Jubilee. Um, and if anything, I feel like those roles should be reversed. Jubilee is pretty terrifying. We have canonical evidence, including in this issue, that she's caused a great deal of property damage to X-Men stuff. Yeah, and potential murder, but um, this is... We've, we've got a main story, and it's it's surrounded by an intercut with two brief vignettes focused on a pair of X-Men each. We've got Archangel and Beast quietly rebuilding Harry's hideaway and, and waxing nostalgic about the good old days. And I love this one. So, of course, Harry's hideaway was destroyed during Executioner's Song, but I love this because we have all these little stories about them as school kids and about them at Harry's hideaway and all the various Silver Age events, and a lot of these are just retcons, little stories created as reminiscences here, and it totally works. It makes the Silver Age retroactively better. I love this stuff when it comes up. I love it so much because in the Silver Age, we basically see dramatic fights and Scott and Jean thinking really angstily about each other and everyone yelling a lot. And there's not a ton of character development, and there's there's really not a ton of, of again, sort of cool, quiet personality moments. You don't really see, get to see much of these students who've presumably been studying together at the school for a pretty long time before they become the X-Men. And every time we get a glimpse back at that, and every time we get a story that really sort of develops the rapport of the original five, it makes me really happy. It totally does. And so does the other little vignette story. Right, and that is Rogue and Gambit having some serious feelings talks on the roof. And she's really got his number here. Charging an object up and throwing it away? That's your special gift. And Gambit kind of acknowledges that, but then he comes back um, with a blanket so that he can hug her, which is really sweet. It's really sweet, and I gotta say, like, going through all this 90s stuff, and also having talked to Kelly Thompson on the show a while back, and reading her Mr. and Mrs. X series after reading her Rogue and Gambit, I am so much more into Rogue and Gambit as a couple than I ever was before. How much I like Rogue and Gambit as a couple very much parallels how much I like Gambit, which is to say it is entirely dependent on how they're being written and, and drawn, how their relationship's being portrayed. In general, this issue has a lot of a lot of you know, Rogue and Gambit, but also some other things I'm about to get to. Like, there's a lot in this issue that I side-eyed going into it, and in general, um, left me very, very impressed. And that brings us to the main story. The main focus here is on Jubilee, who is rollerblading around campus when she almost collides with an exceptionally rare phenomenon: Charles Xavier walking barefoot in the grass. And neither of them was expecting anyone else to be out. They're both a little nonplussed. And as it turns out, Charles has the use of his legs again as a weird sort of temporary after effect of the techno-organic virus that Strife infected him with. And it's only going to last till the virus fully burns itself out of his system. So he's got you know, another hour at most. He doesn't really know how long. And he's trying to make the most of it. And on the one hand, this just ties right into the, wait, what? science of apocalypse curing Xavier and the whole damn thing. But, I mean, my take, and I think your take as well, Jay, from what you've said, if it makes for a good story, good enough. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was going to say here. The other thing I want to talk about first, though, is disability politics, because, and, and how Xavier sits relative to that stuff, because this is the first issue I've seen that comes close to approaching it well. Charles Xavier is pretty tightly wed in terms of how he talks about himself and how he, he discusses and contextualizes disability in, in general to a medical model of disability. And that's one that treats disabled bodies as the, the fundamental you know, barriers and hardships to be overcome. Um, and that's as contrasted with the, the social model of disability, which addresses the fact that the primary barriers are in fact social and questions of access, um, access and acceptance and inclusion. So that, for instance, a wheelchair is a useful tool that should give someone access to spaces and the things that are barriers are not, you know, the fact of the chair, but the absence of ramps. 
Um, and the social model of disability is, is, is the one that's much, much more connected to, to the current state of disability politics and activism. And again, I can go on for hours about how this, this parallels the evolution from Charles Xavier to Scott Summers' philosophies as leaders of, of the mutant community. But I won't do that right now because we're just talking about Charles. Yeah, that was a really good and concise explanation, though, Jay. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've talked about this a lot. So Charles tends to be pretty tightly wed to, to the me- medical model, although this is actually also the first place where we see him correcting Jubilee on terminology, which is pretty cool. And it's hard to tell whether whether Xavier's stance on that is a point of characterization uh, versus a byproduct of non-disabled writers' own biases. I'm inclined personally to read it as both, given, again, how closely it parallels how Xavier discusses and theorizes around mutants and mutant-human relations. So Charles and Jubilee's conversation here is one that, taken in isolation, has iffy elements. Um, But it's a combination of, of Jubilee's own tactlessness and also Charles's somewhat reluctant admission that, yeah, he really misses being able to walk and run which is something that he very deliberately doesn't bring up. Um, it's something that he he angsts about fairly extensively in the Silver Age. But again, I, I sort of feel like we should just sort of gloss over that as embarrassingly ill-informed and, and poorly conceptualized. Yeah, it's like when he was talking about how in love he was with Gene. Like, let's not bring that up again, at least not till Onslaught. Yeah, um, Ons- Onslaught is clearly clearly the, the source of um, Charles's internalized ableism, which is significant and which is present, and I think which makes a lot of sense considering the era and the culture and the social class he came from. So Jubilee, of course, once, once Charles brings this up, and it's funny, I'm referring to him as Charles in the story, which I almost never do, but it kind of feels appropriate. Yeah, he's um, just so human. Yeah, so Jubilee hears all of this and you know that he's he's just he just you know wants to walk and run a bit. Jubilee feels that walking is a mugs game and if he really wants to take advantage of the night, he should be rollerblading. Specifically bladen because it is 1993 and that's how we say things. And uh she talks him into it and the the resultant scene is is just inordinately charming. How did I let you talk me into this? Police and a half, Professor. You're the one who's always going off in the danger room, thinking at us about pushing ourselves to the max and back. That is different, child. The danger room is a controlled environment with an elaborate infrastructure of safeguards and- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out here on the pavement, it's a lot simpler. You fall down, you get up and start over. What are you scared about? You're a natural. Most dudes practice hours before they get this good. I am hardly scared, but should I die, a copy of my will can be found in the upper right-hand drawer in my study. And then she convinces him to close his eyes and dumps them both in the lake. Ah, jubes. Yeah, um, afterwards they, they, fortunately, the T.O. virus does not wear off as soon as Xavier is in a lake with weights on his feet, which is something I kind of feel she should have considered, but, but clearly... You know, we, we also this is also the, the story where we learned that one time she swapped out Cyclops's glasses with, with a pair of, of normal sunglasses. So clearly Jubilee doesn't really consider things like other people's survival that often as compared to the value of a practical joke. But after all the exertion, they get a chance to talk. And bear in mind, Jubilee and Professor Xavier have spent very little time together. She's been the youngest member of the team for a while, but almost all of that time was when Professor Xavier was still in space. When she joined the X-Men, there was no authority figure like that. Like, the closest thing to an authority figure she saw for most of it was freaking Logan. Or Storm. Or Storm. But I think she liked Logan better. There's no accounting for taste. But Jubilee... And, and, and Charles talk, and you know, she mentions that she, she doesn't really think that much of him. He seems uptight and stuffy, but this has been really nice, and he really seems much more human to her now. And, you know, we talk about Jubilee as a reader insert, and I think that's absolutely true here. This story does an incredibly good job of humanizing Xavier for Jubilee, but also for readers. And I think what does even more is what comes after that conversation. Yeah, um, unfortunately, the ball is over, it's almost midnight, and the techno-organic virus 
this one good side effect is finally fading away. Um, the professor tries to make it back to the house on his own, but it's clearly not really working. And after a moment of agonizing over whether it would be weird, Jubilee silently just goes and helps him. Oh, dude, these last couple pages just fucking wreck me. There's this six-panel grid of Xavier struggling to hold himself up, and it becoming very clear that he's starting to fall. It's almost entirely silent. And then, after a page turn, Jubilee agonizing over what to do, and just going and without saying anything, catching him. And it's just this wonderful moment of connection from these characters that, that barely know each other. And the visuals, I mean, we don't talk much about the art by Brandon Peterson. He's not one of those, like, well-known X-Men artists. And I think his work is, it, it's solid, but I, I wouldn't say he's in, like, the top tier. But this right here, just the way he's able to capture through pacing, through structure, just that moment of sad inevitability and then sudden resolution on the part of a goddamn child is beautiful. Peterson is very much a Jim Lee. Um, knockoff isn't the word I'm looking for, but he's very much of the Jim Lee school. And that very much extends to his mastery of facial expressions, especially with these two characters. Absolutely. And it's just such a wonderful, sweet issue. I mean, Lobdell, I think this is the first issue where it feels like he's really coming into his own as a writer. Yeah, where he's really got a distinct voice. And I think this is, this is, a, this is a really good use of characters as mutual foils too because this is this is jubilee who is is the kid of the team really pulling professor xavier out of his comfort zone and getting him to open up in a way that i don't think that any of his more established students or anyone he'd spent more time with could have and at the same time her seeing him as someone who could or could have been or kind of might be up here in, in a distant and vaguely parental way leads her to really step up and take responsibility and and look out for him in in ways that we've we've seen her do before with Wolverine but that she's been kind of reluctant about with regards to the other adults around her yeah this this is X-Men as family which is that's one of my favorite ways for X-Men to be written and this is just another little familial connection that we get that really ties it together in a way that I think the post-image early 90s excel at. Like, we give the 90s a lot of shit, but we are past at least the first hard part. We're getting into a really good era, and this issue is such a wonderful way of bringing it in. Which brings us to another really good issue. We're really, I'm not counting Strife's Burn Book, we're really two for two here. Um, that's X-Force number 19. The open hand, the closed fist. And Jay, this issue is so good. I was getting so excited just taking notes. Like, I was reading freaking half the lines off to Anna while I was working on this episode. I love everything about this because we've talked about how X-Force issues after Life Out Leaves start to really feel like New Mutants. And this is the issue that just says, you know what? Fuck it. This is totally a successor to New Mutants. Let's go all in in that wonderful direction. And God, it makes me incredibly happy. And it's just so well done. It's so good. And like the Uncanny X-Men issue we just talked about, it's it's largely built around one-on-one -on -one conversations and quieter moments in the aftermath of a fight, although in this case with somewhat more narrative momentum. This is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Greg Capullo, and inked by Harry Condelario, a team we've seen in this book for a little while. I also think it's important to note here that Chris Leopolis, uh, the letterer, is credited as penmanship lad, which is definitely also my se secret superhero identity. That is so good. I didn't notice that. I love that. I mean, I, I have had my... The quality of my penmanship has been noted in official court records. <laughs> well done. Wait, what? Right? Um, when, when I... You, to, to legally change your name and gender marker in Oregon, in most states, you have to you have to do a hearing with a judge, and um, there are extensive forms to be filled out, and you're supposed to fill them out legibly and in print because you're writing down what's going to be your legal name. Most people don't, and I was after a string of people who hadn't, and the judge at several points, and again, on record and during official court proceedings, uh, complimented my penmanship. That's kind of amazing. Congratulations. I mean, it's something that I, I do, like, work hard on and enjoy and pursue as a hobby. So it, it, it wasn't, it, 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 yeah. Penmanship lad is, 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 I feel like, a valid, valid identity for me here. Okay, well, you and Chris Eliopoulos can uh, fight it out over that one. Or just share the title like Hawkeye and Hawkeye. 
Well, I assume that by now he's he's ascended to like I don't know, lettering lord or something. Mm, good alliteration. I like it. It's been a long time is my point. The mantle is probably open for for, you know, the taking. Well, anyway, speaking of uh, things we like, I guess, the opening page is amazing. It is Boom Boom in this neon pink and yellow ski suit looking outfit, complete with a sort of pouch harness thing over it, big pauldrons, of course, shades, still that same confusing X-Men book broken jaw headgear she's been wearing, and the word Boomer written down one of her legs, and she has a quote for us. Cindy Flippin' Crawford, House of Style. Not bad if I do mumble so myself. I love it. Also, just this, this outfit, it's so Tabitha Smith. I also love that she's got her name, and I guess she's going by Boomer these days, which I don't like that as much, but whatever. I like that it's running down her pants because it reminds me of DJ from Street Fighter, who has the word Maximum written down the sides of his legs. I always wanted Maximum pants. I, I can't really argue with that. I, I want to add that, that doing doing Boom Boom's accent is really hard with your teeth together. Imagine how hard it must be for her. I mean, she has X-Men broken jaw headgear, which as Polaris has shown us, you can open your mouth all the way with, while complaining about how you can't open your mouth. Well done, Earth 616 science. So I did want to address this because I love Boom Boom, okay, Boomer's new costume, but she's always been very fashion forward, and for me, this feels less like her following pop culture trends that were sort of cutting edge at the time, and more about her almost creating her own superhero pop culture fashion trends. And she is good at it. Well, she's she's gone in this direction before. We saw her take over sprucing up the team during Exterminators, and she's back in that role now, and she has obviously leveled up significantly based on what she comes up with. And we'll see more of that later. But for now, as she's admiring how awesome she looks, Lila Cheney walks in and talks to her about Cannonball. Because, of course, Lila and Cannonball dated for a long time. Boom Boom and Cannonball are dating these days. And Boom Boom is nervous and jealous until Lila explains what's up to her. I'm too busy. He's too young. We had a little fling, that's all. You want him? Then go for it. I wish they high-fived here. Although I do love that Boom Boom does the whole fist-pumping whoop, whoop, whoop thing that everyone was doing for some goddamn reason in the early 90s. Everyone? Everyone. You weren't doing that, Jay? You could have been arrested. I was definitely not doing that. Well, anyway. But yeah, this is absolutely in character. I mean, it doesn't negate the relationship Lila and Cannonball had. It's an ending that's in character for Lila. It opens up new story opportunities. Like, I feel fine about this. You mentioned the New Mutants feel of, of this issue, and no one brings us back to that like Stevie Hunter, who is back at the mansion now. She's drawn really, really beautifully by, Capu by Capullo, although her, her signature braids are missing right now. And she finds Sunspot by the mansion boathouse, um, brooding, lost in thought, trying to figure out you know, what he wants and where he's headed. Right, I mean, he worked for Gideon for a long time, a dude that was totally playing him and then tried to kill him. He got his powers altered in weird ways he doesn't understand. Now he's back with a team that is barely recognizable. I mean, they were running around with Cable, and now they're in all these weird outfits. He's just taking some time at a familiar location, because remember, X-Force is at the Xavier Mansion. This is where the New Mutants basically grew up. Well, a previous iteration of it. Well, yeah. Uh, he points out to Stevie that they used to come out here to the boathouse by the lake, not just because it was pretty, but because they knew Professor Xavier couldn't get through the grass in his chair, and thus that they could just be on their own without a boring, crappy grown-up. Well, that he didn't like to. That he'd, he'd only do it if he really had to. And this book is really good at showing teenagers being kind of shitty, or in this case, young adults who used to be teenagers— but that's just humanizing them more and more. Yeah, Bobby DaCosta is kind of a prick and certainly was even more when he was a teenager, but that's what people are like. That's also a super, super teenager thing to do. Like, you go find the spaces that your parent figures, not, not just the ones you can hide in, but the ones that you know they'll deliberately avoid. Exactly. In a different space, Richter, Shatterstar, and Farrell are training in the Danger Room, wearing the blue and yellow training outfits that 
they only ever wore as prisoners. None of them were early New Mutants. The battle banter is pretty fucking delightful, though. Like, Shatterstar is using uh, clock face battle metaphors. And, uh... Well, clock face directions. That's standard. You know, the enemy at 2 o'clock or whatever. Exactly. Uh, Feral takes him down a peg, though. So you can finally read a clock face. Whoop-dee-doo. Cable forgot to tell you most watches are digital now. They are? Fact. I worked very hard to equate your world's silly timing mechanism to a battlefield positioning strategy. That's kind of mean of Feral, given that even people who use digital watches do generally use the clock hands terminology, you know, on the, in the field. I mean, Feral is kind of mean, but I love this. Like, Nisieza uses New Mutant nostalgia a lot, and we're going to see more and more of that. But here he is using early X-Force nostalgia, a joke from Liefeld's run. It's a callback to it, and it works. It shows that the characters have grown and changed. It shows that Nisieza is not just trying to erase what came before. Well done, Fabian. From the booth, Beast wonders what exactly they should be doing with these well-trained wild cards. And... There are a couple technical things I'm going to harp on here because I do that sometimes. But this there's a page that has has one of those I just give up visual features on it and that is that is what happens when a reading order when the layout of the page botches reading order so badly that you have to have an arrow pointing between two panels that's just stuck in there. Eh, Greg Capullo is a great artist like 99.5% of the time. We'll give him a break on this one. Yeah, it's it's just, it's bright red, and it really sticks out, and it's really clearly not part of the page's design, and just there are other ways to do that. So, speaking of uh, lettering lad here, something that we've seen in this issue and in a lot of others of this era is instead of just italicizing or bolding words that you want to emphasize— uh, Chris Eliopoulos draws these gigantic, like, colored-in words. So, you know, and when a word is emphasized, instead of just being lettered normally, it'll be an outline lettered and then bright red or whatever inside. And I don't know how to feel about that. That's not a new technique. I mean, its most iconic use in X-Men is in the, the classic Professor Xavier is a jerk word balloon. But, yeah, it's used really frequently here, which I'm not super fond of because... A, the way Iliopolis letters balloons, when he has to stack text around it, it gets a lot harder to read. And B, it's like ending a sentence with seven exclamation points. If you do it enough, it stops having impact, and one or two exclamation points stop meaning anything at all. I just thought of how we can make it feel better when that happens, though. We can just assume that just like when a word is emphasized, you, you'll see it in italics, that when a word is in those big red or whatever color letters, the word is being sung. I like that plan, um, but we've, we've also got a couple other stylistic additions. We, he, Leopolis also occasionally underlines things, and he, he usually letters bold words much larger than the, origin, than, than the standard text, and that's weird too, like standard and lettering that that bold words are the same height as as normal text so they don't they don't upset the balloon stacking and they really do here in a in, in a bunch of places and those are also frequently underlined and it's just it's awkward man like i get the emphasis but a we've got too many styles going on and b just it's it, just not a strong enough lettering layout guy to to pull this off i mean the normal lettering is pretty good Oh yeah, no, he's a really good letterer. He, he and he's re and when he sticks with with standard components, he's fine. He's doing a great job. But and and this is again, I think pretty early in his career. He's someone who's who's been doing this for a, a long time. Um but but it's the it's the 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 oversized words are just not working for him in this issue. Speaking of, I don't know, uh, big people, I guess, Warpath and also Siren are stealing data on supervillains from the X-Men's computers. And Warpath doesn't feel bad about this at all. The X-Men, Xavier, have never given me much, Teresa. They began their association in my life by taking my brother from me. They're ending it by keeping us under house arrest. And Siren wonders, doesn't doing this, though, make them the bad guys, not the people they're seeking data on? Walking that fine line is what X-Force has been about all along, isn't it? I mean, kinda, yeah. Other conversations happen as well. Remember, this is one of those quiet issues. 
Cannonball goes to talk to Storm and Xavier about what's going to happen. It has now been weeks where X-Force, even if they're no longer in cages, have been confined to the X-Mansion. I mean, you know, sure, S.H.I.E.L.D. wants them, Val Cooper wants them, but come on, Xavier. And Sam brings up an excellent point, which is that what X-Force has done isn't actually all that different from what the teams under Xavier do. They're just more direct about it. Well, what do you want from us, sir? You took us in. You set us on this road. Then you left the wheel in someone else's hands. Magneto's for crying out loud. So he drives us this way and that, and finally abandons us on the side of the road. And a new driver comes along, maybe not the safest driver around, but he got us back on the road again, just not the same road. But we felt we were headed in the right direction. And now Cable's dead. But guess what, Professor? We've learned how to drive the car by ourselves. Are you ready to let us do that? Um, Miles, by your rules, shouldn't that ourselves have been sung? I suppose, so I'll just do that part again, and you can, you know, insert it, listener, retroactively. We've learned how to drive the car by ourselves! Thank you. You're welcome. It's good to be precise about these kinds of things. I love that it's Cannonball having this discussion with Professor Xavier. Because in some ways, Cannonball's the original New Mutant that owes Xavier the most. Cannonball was working for the Hellfire Club back in New Mutants graphic novel number one, and Xavier took him in. Cannonball's always been sort of the good guy, the rule follower. And so when he's saying stuff like this, when he's saying, Xavier, I think you're wrong, I think your whole philosophy is flawed when it comes to us, you know, you listen. There's a lot of conversation over the years in X-Men about whom Cyclops's era parent is, because Cyclops is clearly Xavier's. And periodically it ends up being, and not as often as it should be, Cannonball. And I think there's a lot to that. I think he's one of very few characters who matures and changes that much and who really has the kind of arc and the kind of maturation that it takes to step into those shoes. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, we'll come back to both Cannonball and Xavier, but there are a couple of brief asides. We see Vanessa, you know, the shapeshifter that impersonated Domino for a while and we thought was dead. Her roommate is checking in on her in their apartment, and Vanessa is pale and naked and indistinct and traumatized and depressed. I feel really bad for her. We don't get really much uh, plot here other than the fact that she's alive and her life is terrible, but Capullo really sells just through her body language and appearance how much everything sucks for her. They also appear to have a phone or intercom system that is cordless but cord with an H, which I assume means that it only operates on one note at a time. Uh, yeah, didn't uh, Nine Inch Nails' With Teeth work that way? Or maybe that was just a rumor. I'm not enough of a music person to know. Anyway, um, also also outside of the Xavier Mansion, GW Bridge gets officially censured for the Weapon Prime debacle in which X-Force you know, stole their ship, got a bunch of people killed, etc. And um, he quits S.H.I.E.L.D. in a huff. So that's a thing. Back at the mansion, Boom Boom does what she did for herself for everybody else. She redesigns everybody's costumes, and they are pretty great. Yeah, if only she had been on the team when the New Mutants were putting together their their runaway costumes, their graduation costumes, because she is really, really good at this. And with access not only to, you know, a department store that she's broken into, but a Shi'ar costume or clothing synthesizer... She's fantastic. She does such a good job. They've got really different costumes that are really individualized, but still have a cohesive team look. Exactly. And I especially love, um, A, Warpaths. He's talking about how now he can turn his head without smacking his chin into his shoulder pads. Ooh, but my favorite thing about his costume is that he has inherited one of my favorite details from a prior retired costume. He has the Rachel Summers Phoenix decolletage. He does. I mean, in this case, it's the Thunderbird uh, logo, but still. Um, now, Cannonball gets a wonderful, like, zippery padded outfit that wouldn't look out of place in Kingdom Hearts, but I love the first draft as he steps into the Shi'ar costume replicator thingy and just yells out, Hey, not so much skin! To which Boom Boom replies, Coward. <laughs> I love it. Now, There are lots of other scenes, lots of other conversations. I wish we could just almost read every line in this issue. It's so good. I do enjoy Siren, Teresa Rourke, Banshee's daughter, talking to Xavier who wonders why she went to X-Force and not to the X-Mansion after the whole Muir Island saga thing where she got brainwashed. And Siren says, well, she 
felt dead inside and she wanted to be with other people who felt dead inside. But that now things were feeling different. Now things were feeling like, you know, it was spring, like the world was coming alive again, like the world was full of possibility. They weren't stuck anymore. They were coming back to life. And that is so perfectly emblematic of exactly this era in X-Force. It's an era of openness, of possibility, of moving forward, not just being stuck in bitterness and, you know, explosions. I mean, there are still explosions, but they're like cheerful, uh, spontaneous, full of potential explosions. And... We end back with with Xavier and Cannonball, this time Cannonball backed by the entire rest of the team. He's gone and, and gotten Bobby from the garden. Siren's with them now as well. They've all got new costumes. Later, Cannonball goes to get Sunspot and br- grab Siren and everybody else, and in their new costumes, they all together confront Professor Xavier. And they tell him they need to go. He needs to stop keeping them functionally prisoner here, it's time for them to head out. To which Xavier responds, Would that it were so simple, Samuel. No, 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 Miles. Would that it were, sorry, would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. No, no. Would that it were so simple, trippingly. Would that it were so simple, trippingly. Thank you for indulging my need to go on an extended Hail Caesar riff there. That's a great movie. I can't come across that line and not go there. It's an important place. It's also it's a fantastic movie. If you've not seen it, it is an absolute delight. And it's one of those movies where, like, so George Clooney is in some good movies and some bad movies. And I rate the quality and, and, and the watchability of his movies not by how good they are, but how much fun he seems to be having. By which rule, Hail Caesar is pretty much the apex. It's also got the best use of both Channing Tatum and Scarlett Johansson in a motion picture that I've ever seen. Pretty great. But yeah, Xavier says that them leaving is is simplistic. They're protected here. And Cannonball has some words for Charles. No more simplistic than your dream, is it? Or Magneto's separation theories. Or Cable's get them before they get you attitude. Nothing's as simple as y'all want to make it. We've already learned that much. Now the next step is seeing what we do with what you taught us. It can all be boiled down to simple questions, Sam. Will you walk the path of violence or salvation? Disruption or unity? The open hand or the closed fist? Funny you should bring that up, sir. And Sam points out that the closed fist can be used to protect, and the open hand can be used to hurt, and he opens the hand that he's had clenched, uh, apparently clenched in a fist the whole time, and reveals a mouse. It's alive and unharmed. That he's been protecting in that hand, and then with his other open hand, he goes to slap Xavier, and Xavier catches his hand saying, all right, kid, you've made your point. And one other obnoxious technical note from me, um, the sound effect there that thapped is positioned and rendered so it looks like it's printed on Sam's glove. Those of you interested in lettering, always make your sound effects overlap with at least one line of the line art to avoid this problem. I mean, it's a new costume. It could be printed on the glove. We don't know. But Xavier says, okay, they're no longer kids and he has no right to be their judge. They can do what they want to do. Sam, are you certain about this? (laughs) Nope. But it's the choice we've made. And in the background of that touching moment, uh, Farrell eats the mouse... God damn it, Maria! But that's totally in character. Is it foreshadowing? Uh, I don't think so. So they, with Lila Cheney, teleport away, heading off to Camp Verde by way of Alpha Centauri. And this is just such a perfect end for this issue. I love the sense of possibility and wonder, and of finally this new dawning of a new day after, well... A, all of the dark times X-Force has been through, but B, honestly, all of the dark times we as X-Men readers have been through. It's been a rough, rough few years. Which kind of brings us to the real actual end of Executioner's song. That's right, and so we mentioned we wanted to touch on a couple of points about it, and we're running a little long here, so we'll be brief, but... One of the things, I mentioned last episode, I think, that this story has a controversial ending, and that controversy largely comes from the fact that we don't find out what the actual deal with Cable and Strife is. When the story ends, we don't know if Strife was the real Nathan Christopher, we don't know if Cable was, we don't know how they got to that point. 
And I think what makes that frustrating isn't the fact that it's unresolved. It's the fact that it's unresolved measured against the length and intricacy of the event. And the fact that the event doesn't really focus on that mystery. If it had if it had really built up the mystery of, okay, who's the real Nathan Christopher? Or, okay, how did Cable get a robot body? Then the lack of resolution could be mysterious. It could be just like this continuation, this cliffhanger into the next arc. But instead it comes out as this uh, big question right toward the end, and then the lack of an answer. And Marvel had really been building up to, you're going to find out about Cable and Strife. And eventually we will, but we sure as hell don't in this story. I think a big part of that problem comes from the fact that our main narrator, the main character whose point of view we have, who who gives us exposition, is Strife. And Strife is so fucking oblique all the time. Like, he doesn't give solid information. He gives vague illusion and overwrought metaphor. And we're left in kind of the same position as a lot of the characters, which is sitting there and wondering what the hell he's talking about. Exactly. And while that's entertaining for podcasting, was it the right story decision? Hard to say. I think that this is an event that reads a lot better in retrospect than it does if you're going chronologically. Knowing what the big twist is supposed to be, knowing who Strife is, knowing who Cable is, knowing what Strife is mistaken about specifically, gives this stuff a lot of retroactive impact that it doesn't really have without that information. Exactly. So I also want to talk about the focus on certain characters because, you know, we have some main characters of Executioner's Song and the rest are sort of sidelined. And no, nowhere is that more evident than with X-Force, who, with the exception of Cannonball and Boom Boom, are behind bars the entire time. I kind of like that because that does let the rest of X-Force remain outsiders, which is a good role for them. They can have their loyalties torn a bit. It's a shame, though, because otherwise one of the best things that this event does is kind of sideline a lot of the major de facto leaders and give what are usually more peripheral characters really a chance to step up. And that doesn't happen so much with X-Force, which I think could have benefited a lot from it. Fair, yeah. So, I don't know, how do we think this stacks up against the other X-Men crossovers? We've had the Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, Inferno, Extinction Agenda, and the Mirror Island Saga, and now this one. I don't like the Mirror Island Saga very much. I think it's a weak story. I think this, this goes probably over that, and probably over Extinction Agenda as well. Um... Inferno is such a perfectly choreographed crescendo and built so deliberately and so comprehensively over so long. I mean, really, Inferno does what this doesn't, which is take a huge number of disparate mysteries and bits and pieces and really tie them together satisfyingly. So, I mean, nothing compares well to Inferno. Inferno is so good. Agreed, yeah. But Executioner's Song, it's a lot better than I remembered. I'm really glad we got to cover it. Fall of the Mutants, I don't really even think of as a crossover event. It's just an overarching theme for a bit. So that ties up Executioner's Song, but you've still got questions. Michael Hyde asks on Tumblr, So, Madeline Pryor is a clone of Jean Grey. Has it ever been established why she doesn't have telepathy or telekinesis? Other Marvel clones have the abilities of their DNA donors, Laura, Gabby, Strife, Ben Riley, Kane, Xavier's post-brood body, so why not her? Okay, so there have been two explanations for this, or rather one explanation and one lack of explanation. We know for sure that it's not just a mistake. It's been brought up that her powers didn't manifest at, at puberty, um, which was either just sort of an unexplained, unexpected cloning fail, or has been hinted to have been sinister suppressing her powers. The question of whether they really manifest at all later is ambiguous. They might have come out somewhat when she was Goblin Queen, but even at that point it's unclear what's latent telepathy and what's, you know, goblin magic stuff. And after that, she only reappears as a psychic ghost, at which point I feel like inherent powers automatically get kind of screwed with her regardless. Yeah. I mean, it seems like officially she did have the powers, they just didn't show up until things got wacky because they weren't supposed to. Or she kind of did. Now, honestly, what I would probably say based on the evidence we've got to work with is a combination of, you know, a minor cloning, minor cloning mishap of some sort and the interference of the Phoenix Force. Because while Jean was 
whole you know whole stock replaced by the phoenix madeline interacted with it a couple times before she was conscious which might have screwed with her her you know what would have otherwise been her base state christina asks via email does miles re-record his what from the cold open every episode or do you reuse a sound clip because it is remarkably consistent every time well, thank you. Uh, it is actually fresh every single time, but sometimes I do record a few what and let Matt choose the best. Uh, we've changed recording setups kind of a lot since we started recording in our bedrooms, and so I never want to fully count on it. Well, and, and you know, what kind of incredulity versus shock versus horror you want to convey with the what varies. We actually had a listener put together a super cut of these. Um, I went and searched around for it right before we recorded, but I had limited time and I couldn't find it. Hopefully I'll have dug it up by the time this episode airs and um, put it in the visual companion. Uh, Jay, the official title for that is a super what? Just saying. All right. Well, speaking of cool things listeners do, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Those are the folks who help us stay on the air and who keep us entirely free of outside advertising. And some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and entities. And here, I believe the mic is going to, oh my, Sexy Cable. Jessica Morrissey and Bill the Pony. I may be gone, but after the battles, the desperation, and the tenderness we've shared, I know I won't be forgotten. You remember my enormous, steel-strong arm, my soft and inviting pouches, and all the pleasures they held. Now I know why you cry and other things. Through time, through space, Jessica and Bill I will return, and next time, you're not going to believe the attachments I'll have with me. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and be sure to check out the brand new transcripts, which we'll link to in the visual companion to this one. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be checking back in with the one and only X-related team not involved in Executioner's song. Excalibur. Excalibur.